As you know, today is Palm Sunday, so I'll return to the Ephesians series after Easter, Lord willing. Today we remember that day that Jesus, our Savior, went to Jerusalem for the last time before he gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins, Palm Sunday. This is the beginning of what the church calendar identifies as this Holy Week. Obviously, we know that the Lord's Day is the day that God calls holy, and that's every Lord's Day. Um, It's helpful, though, to remember on an annual basis a few of these real high points of redemption history the church history that the church calendar provides a bit of accountability that we all I think cherish to some degree and certainly that's true of Palm Sunday and Easter we think this week we meditate in a special way on the finished work of Christ for us that we think of on Good Friday but then of course Easter Sunday morning when he rises again and all is confirmed that we are saved because of what Christ has done so today we come to the passage in the New Testament about Jesus' triumphal entry. But you'll notice what I have on the insert is something else because I want to start back a little bit and then work up to the present, if you will. I want to think of this theme together of the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is a, a theme that runs throughout the Scriptures, obviously laden in the sacrificial system with the lambs who were slain in the Old Testament epic all the way up until now when we look at the Lamb of God, Christ, and see how he fulfills this. But let's take some time this morning on Palm Sunday to meditate upon God's Word. Various passages that point us to this important theme for all of us to know and to to grow more in love with the Lamb of God, Christ our Savior. I want to read an episode that happened 1,500 years before Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. 1,500 years before Jesus was Moses, and it was At that time that God spoke to Moses and gave the revelation of himself. And it was an ongoing promise to send Messiah that was bolstered by what he said and what he did with Moses. What we have here given to the children of Israel is a forecast of Jesus himself. So here as I read God's word, here's the first Passover. Jesus was at the uh, 1500th or so Passover. This is the first one before you. Exodus 12, 1 through 13. Please hear as I read God's holy word. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, and he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, and you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of, the, some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. You shall not... You shall let none of it remain until morning. 
Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lamb of God, so pure and spotless. Lamb of God for sinners slain. Thy shed blood has wrought redemption, cleansing us from every stain. Lamb redeeming, lamb redeeming, bearing all our sins away. Once again this morning, O Lord, through your word and with the help of your Holy Spirit, show us the Lamb of God who is Christ. Amen. As I said, the first Palm Sunday happened some 1,500 years after the first Passover, give, a few, give or take a few years. Now, according to the, Jew, the Jewish historian Josephus, he estimated that over 256 lambs would have been brought to Israel every year to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. That's over a quarter million lambs every year. So for the span between Moses and Jesus, almost 1,500 years of sacrificing lambs like this, there would have been 370 million sacrifices made in the temple. These sacrifices symbolize the sins of the people being paid for by spotless lambs, lambs without blemish. It was at the same time as the Passover feast was being celebrated and the Passover sacrifices were going to start, it was at the same time that the Lord Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He is presenting himself as the sacrifice. Of course, the people don't know this. They think he's coming for some other cause, some political purpose, as they say, save now to him as he enters. But what he is there to do is to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He would be the Passover lamb to end all Passover lamb sacrifices. In Mark chapter 11, we read of this Passover. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter into it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, What are you doing? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, What are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Now, the significance of the colt or the foal of the donkey transporting Jesus, this is to accent the purity of the offering, Jesus himself, his purity, his cleanness. No one else had ever ridden on this donkey. And the Lord Jesus is there because of how precious a sacrifice he is. His perfect sacrifice and substitute for you and I. You know, on Palm Sunday, the lamb presented himself as the perfect offering, 
with all the thousands, the tens of thousands of lambs that were making noise and smelling up the place and being raucous and being brought in and the noise and all of it, in some silence, here comes Christ to present himself as the sacrifice, the forgiveness of our sins, all laid upon him. You know, the symbolism of a sacrificial lamb starts early in Scripture. We saw it already in Exodus chapter 12. Lambs were sacrificial animals for several reasons. Lambs were gentle. Lambs were meek. Lambs were innocent. At least they were pictures of innocence. They're pictures of purity as well. Their wool summoned the idea of cleanness. That's why Isaiah uses this picture in the first chapter of his prophecy when he says, Come now, let, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We have the picture of purity in this lamb, in lambs who are spotless without blemish. Now today we remember the Lamb of God presented for our atoning sacrifice. The designation, Lamb of God, it points to the redemptive character of the work of Jesus. And it does so in several ways. Let's consider them together. First, think on Christ as the Lamb who was without blemish. In Exodus 12, verse 5, I just read, Your Lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. Sacrificial lambs used for that purpose had to show perfection. So at least in thought, you would recognize that we're sacrificing one perfect for those who are not perfect. The perfection of the sacrifice illustrates how holy God is, that God can only accept that which is pure, and that's the reason for the lamb without blemish. Now, it's not as easy as you might think to find a lamb without blemish. If you think of a whole herd of lambs kept together, sheep kept together, Uh, They're banging off each other. There are predators who come in. There are various things that occur. Uh, They get dirty. They get bloodied. All sorts of things can happen to a herd of animals. So to even pick out one, you might even have to pick it out earlier and watch over it for a while before Passover to be very careful. The whole carefulness of it is because of God's holiness and the fact that we shouldn't bring anything impure into God's presence. Well, you know what's impure, you and I. So we need a substitute so that we can be in God's presence. And the sacrificial lambs were to picture just that. Pick a perfect lamb without blemish, and that would be your mediator, the way you can go to God, that you could be in God's presence. You know when we see Israel at its weakest, and this would be true for us too, in a way that's not as obvious. But in Israel, because they had such a vivid sacrificial system where you had to bring your sacrifices and they had to be without blemish to picture Jesus without blemish. But as people slipped in their appreciation for God's holiness, they also necessarily slipped in their appreciation for the level of their sins. When God's holiness, holiness starts to wane, then our view of our sin starts to lower. Much of why sin is tolerated is because people don't recognize God. If you knew God's present, your sin would show all the clearer. Even the smallest of sins would become all the clearer. Even the smallest of blemishes or injuries or dots on a sacrificial lamb would stand out, especially in the presence of the holy God. But in the Old Testament times, there were many ups and downs for the spirituality of God's people. And one of the clear pictures that they were spiritually sick happened when they started bringing unworthy sacrifices before the holy God. In Malachi, the prophet confronts, listen to what he says, 
And he's speaking, of course, for God, a mouthpiece for God. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick. And this you bring is your offering. Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The holiness of God demands holiness in his presence. We cannot give that holiness. We are sinners, so we must have a substitute. And the lamb pictures our substitute. The lamb pictures Christ, the lamb of God, the one who is without blemish. Peter, celebrating this reality that we have because of Christ, the one who is without blemish, he said, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus, the perfect lamb of God without blemish or spot. Now we know this is true of him, still true of him, but he had to come. He had to be willing to lay himself down for us, to present himself a sacrifice for us. This is Jesus, the lamb who came for us. All the Old Testament sacrifices that had been done before, even those beyond the Passover, there are other sacrifices you're probably familiar with, thousands of sacrifices regularly, the priest bringing them, all pointing to some feature of our shortcoming before God in our need for a mediator, for our need for a substitute. All of it points to Christ who is coming. But there's this long period of silence between the Testaments while we wait for Jesus to come. And then this one who stood out as a throwback to Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. Here he is making the way plain. He's setting up the coming of Christ. He's careful to differentiate himself. It's not me that you should look to. It's the one who I'm, who's coming after me. And so he goes out and prepares the way in fulfillment of what Isaiah said, that there would be one who would cry out in the wilderness and make the path straight, prepare everybody for the Messiah to come, for the Lamb of God to finally come. And in fact, when Jesus first see, is seen by John in public, John looks upon Christ and he utters these words in John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb had come. John identifies that moment that the Lamb of God that they had all been waiting for, that 370 million plus sacrifices pointed towards. Now here he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus underwent the incarnation to come as the Passover Lamb for us. He humbled himself to come as a man so that he could then present himself as a sacrifice, as the Lamb of God. And the reason that you and I can be humble towards one another, really at its, at its core level, comes from Jesus, who, though being God, did not think equality with God was something he had to hoard or grasp, but rather emptied himself and came in the form of a bondservant. And he humbled himself, not just to come, but also to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he came. He was willing to come for us. And what did he do when he came? The last part of that passage I just mentioned from Philippians says it. Jesus is the Lamb who gave himself for us. He became our substitute. He stepped into that role. He fulfilled that role. Paul 
very carefully brings the parallel between all the Passover lambs that have been sacrificed and Jesus. When in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb. He calls Jesus our Passover lamb. He is our Passover lamb, beloved. He's the sacrifice for us. Has been sacrificed. Past tense now, as Paul writes to the Corinthians and to us. Jesus' sacrifice is the culminating payment for all of our sins. All the millions of sacrifices were pointing to the one that Christ made on the cross. And the author that captures this the most beautifully in Scripture is the author of Hebrews, when throughout the book shows how all the Old Testament foreshadowed Christ himself. And then gives us explicit direction, explicit revelation about how this is so. In Hebrews 10, verse 11, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Those sacrifices were important, and they had purpose, and it was ordained by God. But they pointed ahead to the actual sacrifice. They were all shadows of the sacrifice to come. The substance was Christ himself. The shadows were in the sacrifices. And those sacrifices themselves, those lambs, bulls, and goats, they could not take away sin. The one who provided that shadow, he would be the one. And we think of our Old Testament brothers and sisters. They looked ahead through the sacrificial system to the finished work of Christ. So their faith was in the work that would be done by their sacrifice. We have this unity. We look back at the finished work of Christ. And when we come around the Lord's table, once again, we, look at, we, we break this bread, we drink this cup until he comes again. And every time we do it, we proclaim his death until he comes again. We proclaim the death of the lamb on our behalf. We look to the one who saved us by his sacrifice in the picture of the Lord's Supper. There's a great unity between God's people because we are all saved by the finished work of Christ. We're all saved by the Lamb of God who gave himself for us. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, the author of Hebrews continues, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He perfects us. He does this work as our substitute. And with his substitution comes this guarantee to all of you that your sins, all of your sins, they're forgiven and they can never be revisited. They're all taken by the Lamb of God who gave himself in your place. In Isaiah 53, looking ahead to this great work of Christ, the Messiah, 700 years before The prophet said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, it's interesting when Philip had opportunity to lead a person to Christ, a man from Africa who was there in his chariot was talking, reading excerpts of the prophet Isaiah. He knew something was here. He knew there was a promise of salvation. He could see the grace of God in the pages, but couldn't put the dots together. And in Acts Acts 8, 31 and 32, he said, how can I unless someone guides me and explains this to me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
Now, the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the substitute I need. You can imagine the Ethiopian saying just that. That's it. That's the answer. He's the one for me. He gave himself for us, the Lamb of God. Ian Campbell said, The biblical image of Jesus as the Lamb of God is not just a convenient illustration. It brings us to the very essence and heart of the gospel, where the God-man is held accountable for the law-breaking of sinners, dies as their substitute, and provides a way of salvation through his own shed blood. The Lamb of God, is, he's most precious to us for the redemption that he provides us through his death. But that's not all. Jesus the Lamb has done this great work. He has finished this great work. But we know that Jesus is not dead, that he rose again. And from his place next to the Father, he continues his ministry to his people. The Lamb of God continues to preserve us still. You know, more than any book in the Bible, the book of Revelation describes Jesus as the Lamb of God most. 27 times John refers to Jesus as the Lamb. In one of those instances, John looks ahead and sees people who are professing faith in Christ apostatizing. They're turning away. They're following after the devil instead. And of course, that would make any reader nervous. Well, how will I know if I will be able to persevere? And listen to what John says of the Lamb who preserves you. And all who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those who are in the Lamb are preserved, are kept are safe, are sealed, are secure. The Lamb preserves you. Back in the 60s and 70s, Francis Schaeffer wrote really probably hundreds of letters, but there are a few books that have dozens of them. I read them in the early 90s. It was actually the first time I had read anything that he wrote beyond some of the, the well-known ones, like the Christian Manifesto and so forth. How shall we then live? I had read those, so I went to his personal letters. And at the end of his letters, he would commonly, no matter who he was writing to, he would say, in the Lamb. About that time, in the mid-90s, I adopted that personally for the way I signed most of my letters as well. And the reason is that the Lamb means more than maybe we thought prior. He's not just a wimpy little guy in stained glass windows kind of pictures carrying around other lambs. No, this is the lamb who was slain. This is the lamb who stands in victory. This is the lamb who has laid himself down for you. This is the lamb who preserves you. This is the lamb, oh, by the way, is coming back. And this is the lamb who reigns. So in the lamb means far more than just a reference to the gentleness of Jesus. The Lamb has to do with what Revelation says about Jesus. In Revelation 14, it is these who have not defiled themselves. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind and as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This is a picture of the faithfulness that God gives to his people who are in the Lamb. And this is the same sentiment meant when Paul says to the Philippians, I am sure of this. 
He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Yes, he paid for your sins. Yes, you are forgiven. And he still keeps you. He still holds you. The lamb still has you. That's the beauty and the power of Christ and what he has accomplished and is continuing to accomplish and maintain for his children. And the lamb is, in fact, coming again. In Revelation 5, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, still bearing the marks of crucifixion, but yet standing alive, with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. You have this picture in Revelation of the lamb victorious. This is a stark picture in Scripture because you don't normally think of a lamb as victorious. But seeing these lasting marks on the lamb's body, showing the finished work, this conjures this graphic image for sure. And we see in Revelation 19, I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like a roar of many waters, and like the sound of a mighty peal of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. In the last chapter of Revelation, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I am coming soon, and I bring recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha, Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David and the bright and morning star. The Lamb of God will return. The Lamb of God is coming again, and not nearly as meekly as the first time. But you know what else is true that's always true? That the Lamb reigns. The Lamb now reigns. The Lamb of God is over all things that you can see. I think the greatest picture of this happens in Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, John records seeing a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. And it's a beautiful picture of salvation and the victory of Jesus. Who is worthy to open up the scroll, this mighty angel says. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth are able to open and look into it. They can't even look into it. They can't pick it up and look into it. It's a tragic scene at the beginning. There's a scroll that needs opened, and it cannot be opened because no one's worthy to open it. And I began to weep loudly, John says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, you can almost imagine an elder whispering, weep no more because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open up the scroll and its seven seals. The lamb's described as a lion. But between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. A lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. That's the lamb who took the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, and the, holding a harp and bo- golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of, and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. The Lamb of God will reign, and his people will reign with him. 
John said, then I looked, and I saw around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voices of many angels, numbering myriads upon myriads and thousands and thousands. And they were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, every creature on heaven and on earth, and in the sea, in all that is in them. And they were saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. What a picture. That's the Lamb. That's the Lamb of God. That's our Lamb of God. He's the one who's reigning over all these things. You know, I started this sermon with reference to the first Passover, 1,500 years before the time of Jesus, under the time of Moses. Now, that's an early reference to a Lamb of God being sacrificed, for sure. Lambs of God being sacrificed, sheep. But there is actually an event that predates Moses, and maybe you've been thinking about that. That's an important event for sure. In some ways, even more important than the one I just mentioned from the time of Moses. 500 years before the time of Moses was Abraham. That's 2,000 years before the time of Christ. 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. As many years as we are this side of Christ, that many years before Christ was Abraham. And God called Abraham. And God told Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loved, and sacrifice him on Moriah. Listen to Genesis 22. Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, on one of the mountains in which I tell you. Now, you have children. I've got children as well. I've got three sons. And I wouldn't give any one of them for you. I'm being straight with you. And you would not give me your son, either, your son for me either. And yet, God calls Abraham to take his only son, the son who he'd waited for and loved, and to sacrifice him. To sacrifice him. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offerings and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. That's only two verses long, but if you've ever cut wood, it takes a long time. And he's doing all this to get ready for this sacrifice that he's going to make. And he's there with the son whom he loves. He loves to be with his son. He loves everything about his son. And he's got to do all this without saying anything to him at this point about what it's all about. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offerings and laid it on Isaac, his son. He had his son actually carry the wood that would be burning his sacrificed body. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, and this had to be the hardest part, and he said, here I am, son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they both went together. Now keep in mind in this passage, if you know how the story goes, I'm sure. But God promised a lamb, that God would give a lamb. Now the story unfolds. They came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order. And bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Of course he did. Yes, I'm here. Do not lay your hand on your boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked his eyes to the heavens, to God. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket with his horns. Now that's not a lamb, but that's good enough. Right? But God did promise a lamb. But for Abraham's sake, the ram. And he takes the ram and he sacrifices the ram as a thanks to God that it wouldn't be his son, Isaac. Do you know where Moriah is? Moriah is in the same spot that the temple was later built. So the place where Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac is where the temple was in Jesus' day. So here comes Jesus on that day, that first Palm Sunday, riding in the foal of the donkey, and he goes in, as the passage says, listen to what it says. Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Mark 11, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Now you probably know the story is kind of odd because he just goes into the temple, doesn't do much of anything and leaves. That's because God had finally provided the, the lamb. This is why John says at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, the lamb that they had long been waiting for, that he promised on Moriah, behold, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray. Oh, lamb of God, sweet lamb of God, how we love you, holy lamb of God. Oh, wash us in your precious blood, my Jesus, our Christ, the lamb of God. Amen. Let's respond by turning in our hymnals to 311. 311, I will sing the first two verses as we stand. Hail to the Lord's anointed, and as the elders and the ushers come to, to serve the Lord's Supper. Let's stand. <laughs>